0: Welcome to another episode of Red Skies, where we seek to read the cultural signs of our times in conversation with thought leaders from around the globe. Our goal is to find a path for our future as the church, asking the question, how can we as followers of Jesus be good news to an ever chaotic and divisive world? This podcast is brought to you by Movement Leaders Collective, a community and catalyst for movement leaders worldwide, and 100 Movements Publishing, seeking to change the conversation, shift paradigms, equip leaders, and inspire missional discipleship, and is produced and presented in partnership with our friends at Missio Alliance, a generative, expansive, and intercultural network around theology and practice. You can find out more about the book, Red Skies, 10 Essential Conversations About Our Future as the Church, as well as other tools available to help your church organization or movement at redskiesfuture.com. The book can also be purchased on Amazon, at Barnes and Noble, and other platforms where books are sold. You can enter the missional conversation with other movement leaders around the globe at movementleaderscollective.com. And now for this week's episode. Hey, welcome to another Red Skies Conversation. Uh, my name's Roland Smith, I'm one of your hosts, and uh, as always, joined by my friend, Rich Robinson in Edinburgh. Hey, Rich, how are you?
1: Wow, well, Roland, the sun is shining this yep. afternoon.
0: Just oh, man.
2: So That's I, a rare you-
0: a rare occurrence in the UK. This is going to be fun today because one of our regular co-hosts, Ania Akwabi, is actually going to flip her chair around to be the guest today because she wrote a fantastic chapter in Red Skies. And so, uh, Ania, it's great to see you on Zoom, and thanks for joining us and um, sharing your thoughts on this important topic. It's good to see I'm you.
2: excited to be here. Yeah, yeah that's Great.
0: Well listen your your chapter um I I read it well I read it several times through the editing process and it just it captured me from from the start and I've gone back and re read it again um a few times because of the way that you lace some of the principles and the history and the pathway of race and the church and um you know is it fair to say some of the maybe the blinders that the church has has had on or even unintentionally accepted at times and um this is a huge topic we could spend five or six hours talking about it um and there's a lot of cultural things outside of the race conversation um outside of the church that we could spend a lot of time on but i want to get to the church quickly Mm -hmm. um but while i want to do that you're a sociologist and i don't want to just bypass that really important historical part so Mm -hmm. can i ask you to attempt to kind of elevator pitch that first part of your chapter on race where you you kind of frame some of the historical narrative, especially in the United States, around systemic issues of racial disunity. And I know that's a that's a big thing to ask, but maybe, you know, we want to get to the church conversation. So so but kind of give us give us your view on culturally and sociologically kind of what we're looking at.
2: Sure. So I think the place I will start, and I think a good framing for our conversation is an understanding of what race is. So race is an assigning of meaning to physical appearance. Mm -hmm. Okay. If you look at racial groups in this country um, and actually uh, throughout the world, we have mapped the entire human genome. There is not a set of genes that applies to all people classified as black or all people classified as white or Latino or et cetera. Mm -hmm. Um, Neither is there just the ability to look at, at one attribute of somebody and and tell what their race is. Uh, For example, I am a, medium brown skinned black woman, Uh, you can look up pictures of me online. There are people who are classified as Asian, um, who have a very similar skin tone to me, but are classified in a different group because of other elements of that physical appearance. And that assigning of meaning to physical appearance is not neutral, but it is designed to maintain racial hierarchies. So for us, the history of race really goes back to the Atlantic slave trade, Race didn't really exist uh, before that. There were, sure, always groupings of people. There were always ways to separate people by tribe or ethnicity or or culture or et cetera. Um, But this creation of race was designed to create groups of people who were considered superior to other groups of people and to justify that inequality. And we continue to live with the consequences of that because we have not taken the proper action in order to repair the creation of these higher hierarchies and these inequalities. And so it leads to a condition today where you see somebody and along with you know deciding what gender you think they are you decide what race they you think they are and you assign a meaning to that whether consciously or subconsciously that affects the way that you treat them it also affects, based on the weight of history, the way that people are treated in institutions. Everything from our educational system to our uh, churches, as we will talk about in a little bit, to our uh, criminal justice systems. All of these things are uh, completely affected by race and have been, honestly, for the past over 500 years at this point.
1: And, and I know you you used the, the term in that consciously and unconsciously. And in the start of the the chapter, you also talk about the individual versus the communal or the systemic approach to race Mm -hmm. and and racism. So just unpack for us a little bit the conscious and unconscious dynamics that are are at play for us. So we we don't know what we don't know, and it's a blind spot because we're blind within it. Mm -hmm. And also just unpack a little bit for us the, the dynamics of what would it mean or should it mean? to shift from thinking of this in an individual context. So, the repentance and the repairing and the restoration is not just individual repentance, but there's something communal, systemic, and broader. It's us, not just me. So, those two would be great to hear a little bit more
2: on. Yeah, absolutely. So, particularly in Christian communities, there is a push to deal with race as an individual issue, as an issue of the heart, if you will. Mm -hmm. And the idea being, uh, I often hear this solution that everyone should examine their own hearts and get their own hearts right, and then uh, endeavor to get to know somebody of another race. And that will affect the way that you treat them. I'm not saying that any of those things are bad. Those are great things to do. But they will not solve the problem of racial inequality. And the reason why is because, as I mentioned, it's built into our systems and the way that we live. Um, this is a controversial idea in some circles, but based on the research that exists, it really shouldn't be a, a controversial issue because if we look at any um, area uh, of, of life, we can see differences in life chances by race. And so, if racists today stopped existing. If nobody held any racial animus in their heart anymore and everybody acted neutrally towards each other and we just allowed the the current state to continue as it is today, we would still have racial inequality. And the reason why is because such a gap has been built up in terms of where people live, And the wealth that they have and the the places where they interact with each other and the the organizations built around those those interactions, that even if we were to examine our individual hearts, that we couldn't get rid of racism and so it the onus is really on us to to look at uh as the bible would say uh the principalities and powers that exist behind uh what creates racial inequality today in order to actually deal with it and get rid of it the other thing that you mentioned is is the the conscious versus the unconscious and one of the areas that i i also study is a a bit of social psychology Um, the status that we assign to people by race affects the way that we treat them. Uh, The status that we assign to them, the amount of respect and deference that we give them um, is determined by physical appearance. Again, when we see somebody in our group, we decide in that moment how we are supposed to interact towards them. And a lot of those processes are unconscious. Um, Because they're unconscious, they can proceed uh, unimpeded. Basically, somebody who is one hundred percent convinced that I am a person who treats everybody equally, because they don't stop to examine whether or not they actually do that, are more likely to treat people unequally because they have not taken time to examine those unconscious processes.
0: Yeah i i was um, I was struck by a couple of things in in your chapter talking about this individual community aspect, which I, I think is. I think we'll get us to the church conversation also cuz I went to Promise Keeper rallies and you write about that. I'm and sorry. and were, <laughs> no no no. So <laughs> uh, but Promise Keepers was probably the fir- a stadium in Little Rock Arkansas was probably the first time I walked down an aisle, you know, mm-hmm. and kind of I don't think I surrendered my life totally to Jesus that day, but it was kind of like my first religious you know experience um with maybe a more tangible god and so there's some good things out of there were some good things for me out of promise keepers but i remember that that racial reconciliation push Mm -hmm. of that movement and and how i never thought of it in terms of cheap reconciliation yeah you know where where uh we can you know it's kind of and i'm you know, I'm an old white guy. And, and so, if, you know, for me to say, oh, I've got a, I've got a few black friends mm-hmm. that that's one of those statements that I can think that I'm saying that is positive in my individual journey of understanding race, but it's really a cheap reconciliation. You know, mm-hmm. uh, it kind of lets me off the hook a little bit and it, and it, and we don't have to engage a community um, discussion around social justice and equality, and what does the kingdom look like, yes. and how is how is our community going to help the kingdom look like it should?
2: Mm-hmm.
0: So, you you talk about um you talked about this in your chapter um that it's that even in multi ethnic church which i know you're you're a proponent of you've been part of we we have a friend who you know, Mark Demas has written a chapter in this book and has been real involved in that, but that it's more than just mixing ethnicities, even in a congregation, that that could be a form of cheap, cheap reconciliation. And so what I'm grasping at, I'm doing a lot of talking here, what I'm grasping at as a white 59 year old pastor of privilege mm-hmm. it is like, what are the tangible moves that I can make? What are the steps that I can make that are more than just, hey, we our congregation congregation needs to look more multi-ethnic.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: You see what I'm saying?
2: Yeah, no, absolutely. Great question. Um I will else I want to start off by saying, yes, I have been involved in in multi-ethnic and multiracial churches and continue. Uh mm-hmm. the, my own church is uh diverse, racially diverse. <laughs> But what we found over the past 20 years as churches have become more diverse is if you don't deal with the issues of of power and privilege, what happens is you end up bringing um, people of color into majority white spaces that operate off of white normativity, that that unintentionally and often unspokenly operate uh, based on, on white ways of working from preaching to music to service length these churches look more like majority white churches than they do like majority black churches, Korean churches, et cetera. And so what that ends up doing is the church gets to call itself diverse or multi-ethnic or multiracial, but the people within the church, particularly the people of color who have left their cultural context to assimilate to a different cultural context end up getting hurt in the process. So you're redoubling that inequality. For groups of people who are already marginalized in society, they're now coming to into a church to be marginalized again. Mm-hmm. And so my position on this has changed a ton over the years. Okay. Uh, I think not quite 20 years ago, but almost 20 years ago when I started working in, in multi-ethnic, multi-racial churches, the goal was to get people in the room together and then to say, once we get people in the room together, we'll figure this out. Uh, We will work to to get to know each other better, and that will lead to better relationships, and that will, as we get to know each other's problems under the surface, that will lead to a push towards racial justice. I've now revised that line of thinking. I believe that bringing people of color into spaces that are not prepared for them is too harmful and too traumatic for them. And I've seen the fallout in congregants and pastors who have been in those spaces and now find it hard to even be in church. Um, And so we can't continue to inflict that harm. And so what I would say as as a pastor, as as a leader, especially a white leader, is what can I do to make my space more equitable? Before I bring in anybody who is of a a different race, before I worry about the the demographics of my church, how do I create a space where people are understanding and talking to the, the issues that affect all people, from people of color to women to immigrants? and creating a space where those issues are heard and understood from a biblical perspective. Um, What really does Jesus say about the the marginalized and and folks who are not included by society? And preparing people to know that history and to, to take action towards that. Before the church becomes a place that demographically looks diverse, because if you've created a welcoming environment, uh, my husband and I like to talk about like you've got a a stamp of certification. You are a safe place. Now I can come in uh, to this place. Uh, Trying to diversify before that happens um, is going to lead to unintentional harm. And so that's that's basically what I say. Start there with your preaching, with your teaching, with the activities you pursue, with the current events that come up. People should be really clear on where you stand as a church towards these issues um, and really clear how it fits in the scripture before you do anything about the demographics of your church.
1: And Onea, how how do people as they're seeking to act their way into a new way of thinking and begin to make those changes mm-hmm. how how do they go about learning so if i if i think of learning to drive mm-hmm. i want to drive i get behind the wheel i'm going to set off is a dangerous way to to get anywhere and to teach yourself to drive so you you need an instructor you need to learn the ways of the road you need somebody who's been there who's done it so as as that advocacy towards change this and start this and move towards this how how do people learn because they're stepping into something that either they've not been aware of or they have been aware of but not necessarily able to make some of the shifts that you're advocating for so how how can they have help or who can help or where do they go to learn some of these things rather than just bumble forward and fumble forward and and potentially make it worse rather than better
2: yeah, well, the great news is that there are so many good resources out there. You know, honestly, at, at this point, if you want to learn about the the history of the church and race, if you want to come to understand um, what is going on in the, the contemporary world as regards uh, injustice and inequality, um, it it exists out there for you. Um, there are also a number of organizations and consultancies that can help uh, people do that. Um, I, you know, I run one called the Love & Unity Project. There are other great ones um, that are out there, so we're d- clearly not the only solution. But if you're serious about this, there are people and organizations who can walk alongside of you to help you do this work. And what I want to caution against is what has been done in the past, which is take the nearest person of color in your congregation and say, you must know something about race. Can you tell the rest of us your experience? Um, Because that, again, does not honor um, the position of that person in your body. This is one of the things I talk about in the chapter. And one of the things I think is the most important uh, is having the right priority. And that comes from uh, 1 Corinthians 12, 24 and 25, where it tells us exactly what we need to do to not have division in the church. Uh, It's funny that we've overlooked it because we've been trying to get rid of division in the church. And there's actually a scripture that tells Mm -hmm. us that there be no division in the church but then we we don't do it so that's you know that's we, that's,
0: we you know. never do that with scripture <laughs> we never yeah, do. You know? <laughs> uh
2: i'm always too uh, optimistic about that but the verse that tells us before just before that how to get to this that there be no division in the church is that we give greater honor to the parts of the body that have lacked it. Mm -hmm. That means as we look around the body of Christ, there are parts that have been dishonored. You know, historically, women have been dishonored um, since the early church. Um, Folks of color in our current iteration over the past 500 years have been dishonored. The poor have been dishonored Mm -hmm. in favor of those who have means. The less educated or less credentialed really have been dishonored. And so we look at all of those groups and we say, okay, if we want to have no division in the church, we have to give greater honor to these groups in the church. And that is what's going to lead to no division. Once again, what I I typically see is when churches want to uh, bring in people from different backgrounds together, they're giving greater honor to the parts of the body that have already had honor. Mm -hmm. That doesn't sound true on its face, but look at some examples. Uh, For example, avoiding conversations about race um, because Mm -hmm. white people in the church may be offended. Mm-hmm. Or avoiding conversations about sexual assault because men in the church might be offended. Mm-hmm. Or avoiding conversations about what the Bible says about money and wealth because people who are are making sure my church continues to go might be offended. Mm-hmm. When we continue to give greater honor to the parts of the body that already have honor, of course there's going to be division because there's a a, a a an unrighteousness and an injustice underneath the surface that can't ever lead to unity.
0: Mm-hmm. When, when you were talking, it makes me think about um, I was at a lunch yesterday with a um, this pastor church planner in Denver and she was she, she was part of a church planting network that, that we we know about and they took a pretty bold step uh, recently to make a public statement about their awareness of their um, imbalances. In their assessment process and how that presented that hurdle it's almost like you know they they were um giving a nod to people that already had honor and ability and um education and all those kinds of things it was easier to get through the assessment process than someone of color that would have the same calling you know even and so um you know we were talking about how that would how that was a a really good first step. and that's even something that we're looking at in Forge America, you know, who I'm involved with, um, you know in our postures too. What are the what are the systemic postures that a church community might take in their context mm-hmm. in order to be a display of what the, the kingdom should be. Now, I mean you just talked talked specifically about what that can look like, but but how can we display that? I'm a, I'm a missional thinker and so how can we display that to our city or our neighborhoods? Um, you know what are the ideas you would have in doing that?
2: Yeah, absolutely. I want to I want to talk about this on two levels, because you you mentioned some denominational processes. So I want to speak mm-hmm. to that. And then I want to speak to the local church okay. um, on a denominational level. You know, one of the things that comes up over and over again is how many um, credentialing or ordination processes use credit scores, and mm-hmm. they use them uncritically, without thinking about the ways that um, predatory credit has disproportionately affected communities of color. And so, you know, thinking about that uh, in the context of a society that has inequality is important. Um, when we think about uh, church planting organizations and people who give money to to those sorts of efforts, A, um, privileging people who have uh, connections and have a, a greater level of wealth. I can still remember being in my church planting training, um, which was great, by the way, in in some ways, but um, telling the, the leader saying, okay, make a list of all of the people you can ask for $5,000. I'm like, mm. I don't... I, <laughs> Come again, (laughs) that is not a long list of people for me, um, especially given the fact that um, the majority of Americans couldn't put their hands around $1,000 if they needed it to save their house tomorrow. Um, so I don't I don't have a long list of people who can give me five thousand dollars and the places where those church planting investments are made, which are usually in places where there are historic churches, especially mm-hmm. in urban areas, who could use some of the resources that you're giving to this new, shiny, young church planter and and mm-hmm. could um impact their communities that way so denominations thinking about the societal injustices that have led up to the point where we are now and not using their tools uncritically Mm -hmm. in terms of a a local church i think it comes down to to showing up um, day in and day out there are a lot of churches when something happens that they want to be part of a march, they want to be you know, part of a conversation, that they want to hold a conversation, but none of that changes the underlying paradigms um, within the church. Mm-hmm. A commitment to be involved in your communities and your local government and legislation um, day in and day out, um, regardless of what is happening in the news, becomes something that a community can see your consistency. Now, there's enough issues of injustice that you can't be involved in every single thing. Um, you would not honestly have time for anything else. Um, but if everybody is involved in something, um, then the body of Christ as a whole can start to move things forward. One of the things that that we as a church have decided to be involved in is um, foster care. Um, there are There's a lot of racial disparity in terms of Who ends up in foster care? um, Because one of the biggest reasons that uh, particularly Black children end up in foster care is, quote unquote, neglect. Now, neglect doesn't mean that they have bad parents or parents who are not looking out for them. Neglect literally means their parents don't have enough money to take care of them. Mm -hmm. So what does the state do? The state takes their children away and puts them in a foster home, but then gives the foster parents money to take care of them why couldn't you give that money to the existing family or to a relative to take care of that same kid yeah. and so trying to make efforts a to make sure families have what they need to keep children in those homes and to b um, you know petition for a change in laws so that family providers can get those same funds to be able to keep their their children with family members. And so that's just one example of something that somebody could be involved in but I always tell people you know to pick one issue at your individual level. So have every person pick the thing that they care about the most and be involved as an individual. And then your church, pick one issue um, that you care about the most that you can make a tangible impact on in your community and show up for that issue consistently. Week in, week out, year in, year out. And that starts to make a difference.
1: And and I know you, you mentioned earlier the right priority. And in your chapter, you talk about three corrections and and reset so for those that haven't yet had the chance to read the chapter just lay lay those three you've you've named one of them of the right priority what, what are the other two and mm-hmm. give us that frame for those that are listening and that there, there is that conviction that desire to learn to reorientate to repent what what are those three places of correction and, and reset for us
2: yeah so the other two are the right view um being able to look at the world Uh, with a level of optimism. And I know that this might sound uh, contradictory because I've just told you a lot of very bad, very hard things. (laughs) Um, But this is what I do. I say the world is very bad and very hard, but it doesn't have to be that way. Mm -hmm. And so Mm -hmm. if you lose that second half of it doesn't have to be that way, or I can see a better world, you're not going to be incentivized to do anything to change it. But if you can continue to see through the eyes of openness and wonder instead of uh, um, eyes of distrust, you can be part of making this better future. So we as Christ followers, um, we have Holy Spirit. And so we have every reason to be able to look at a world that is not as it should be and see the world that that we desire it to be. The second is related, and that's the, the right eschatology. I think we have gotten to a place in a lot of corners of Christendom where we are just waiting for Jesus to come back. It's like when Jesus comes back, the world will be set right. And I just got to hold on until then. Um, If that were our goal, um, we would come into a relationship with Christ and we would automatically be sucked up like one of those tubes in the bank. You know, you're just, you know, (laughs) We are here for a reason. And so a, a a view of an eschatology that is about the Kingdom of God and the Kingdom of God being here and now, being initiated when Jesus walked around on earth, is that we are part of helping that kingdom come in every area that we walk around. So having this idea in our heart that I want to be part of making race relations and wherever I live and wherever I step my foot, look more like Jesus was in charge. Mm. And when we are driven by that, A, we don't settle for cheap reconciliation because cheap reconciliation doesn't look like Jesus is in charge. It looks like a bunch of people not really talking about issues and sweeping everything else that exists under the rug. And then B, we are, are, are hopeful for what our efforts, not individually, but as the collective body of Christ can do.
0: Yeah. I, I want to. I want to read. I actually had this underlined in the chapter um, when I first reread the the chapter after it was printed, and it's in that section you just talked about. And you write, uh, "Dreaming of a better racial future doesn't come from our hearts and minds alone. It comes from the heart of God, and it's backed up by the promises of Scripture, which is why we can have confidence that when we open our eyes wide in wonder and belief." that we will not be disappointed and so i i just i so appreciate um your balance of transparency of the facts and the history and those things not pulling any punches but also saying there is a future and there is a hope uh there's a way that we can show and display the kingdom of god now um, we just need to lean into that um and really do that um I I don't want to get past um, one topic, which which I hear a lot about, which is, and you write a little bit about, which is shared leadership mm-hmm. in the church. And I have read both positives and negatives on inviting, intentionally inviting, just shared leadership into um, a church setting. And I'd love to hear. You know here you kind of riff on that a little bit because i mean i've i know that i know that sharing leadership and say hiring people of color into leadership positions elder teams those kinds of things can dramatically shift the culture and the ethos of a community over time but i've also also read a book by one african-american pastor who was you know, a teaching pastor at a megachurch, and it was a it was a horrible experience because it was a to, it was a tokenizing type feeling to them, and really didn't shift shift the culture. So, do you see a path forward in saying we should intentionally look at multi ethnic leadership teams, or does this get back to um, kind of cheap cheap reconciliation a little bit?
2: Yeah, great question. Um, actually, my my current research is on um, employees of color within churches, uh, workplaces, and universities, and I found that among my my pastors who were hired into quote unquote diverse churches uh, in order to. Um, you know, have a, have a different uh, complexion on the leadership team, um, nine out of 10 of them experienced uh, physical and emotional signs of stress based on their position in those um, places that were not prepared for them, um, which goes back to what I said earlier, you know, you need a credential or a stamp of approval. Mm-hmm. These places thought that just by bringing in a person of color, um, that was going to solve the issue. And so their underlying ways of working, their underlying leadership, their underlying biases all stayed in place. And so you just brought a person into this this toxic environment and, in some cases, gave them the responsibility for changing the toxic environment that they are now a part of without giving them any power to do so. So that is not what I mean by shared leadership. Um, That does not work. What needs to happen by shared leadership is not bringing somebody into an existing structure that says, we operate this way and come alongside and be be part of the structure or make changes around the edges. What has to happen is a a sharing of power and and an equal power. So My guess is this person that you talked to who had such a, a difficult time, and it breaks my heart every time that happens, didn't really have the power to make change didn't have the power to to say what they really felt without uh, repercussions, didn't have the power to hire and bring in more people to reflect that that change and did not come into a place that was building a new table together with them instead of inviting them to uh, a seat at a table that had already been set. Mm -hmm. Shared leadership requires that we be willing to to rethink our 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 structures and our our paradigms. And actually, I've um, Love and Unity Project, along with Rich, along with Alan Hirsch, has developed a great uh, process to help people uh, uncover what already exists and then redo those, those stories and those assumptions that underlie organizations before you build something new, before you bring in new people. Because if you don't look at those stories and see where racial inequality exists within the foundations of your your organization or your church you can build all of the programs you want you can bring in all the people you want you are going to go back to that same way of working because you've not changed the underlying assumptions you've not changed the the um the system on, on which you work. The the system. Yeah. Mm -hmm.
0: Uh, Yeah. And I'll, I'm, I'm going to put a plug in here for a pretty edgy uh, discussion on this, which is the the problem with Jon Stewart, that show. I don't know Mm -hmm. if y'all have watched that, but um, you know, Jon Stewart's a television host and he's got kind of a clean show. And then he's got this, uh show on apple tv called the problem with and he picks different topics so you know it may be climate change or different things and he has one on race mm-hmm. and um while it's very edgy and the language is not always that clean um it boy it is eye-opening because they go through they go through this realization of what systemic means what system you know those systems uh, that you don't even see. Um, the effect that those can have and so i would you know our listeners i would um you know i'd recommend that they go look at that
1: and, and i i i would i would really value hearing your your picture of of your preferred future your hope mm-hmm. for the future you talked about the optimism the wonder the childlike faith that in red skies, what we're seeking to do is to read the signs of the times, but also to look to the horizon. What would a a church and ecclesia be beginning to not just right wrongs and not be this, but actually more fully become who Christ would desire the church to be? So just paint a picture for us of, of your hope for a preferred tomorrow what would this look like if there was unity reconciliation that wasn't just cheap but was was deep there was the systemic shifts and changes needed there were people that had communally gone through the repentance process turned away turned towards what what does that tomorrow look like in in your heart in your mind and and the hope that you carry
2: yeah absolutely i um for listeners who can't see me i've got a little smile on my face just thinking (laughs) about it so um for me it would be when you assess you know within the walls of a church you don't see any difference um, in, in satisfaction, in leadership opportunities based on things like race, based on things like gender. Uh, um, this is something that we do. And we invariably, even in the most progressive churches, see um, people of color feeling less welcomed, uh, less likely to take on leadership positions, um, you know, less connected. And to see all of those differences be a race, um, and that's something we could actually see. We could actually measure that and see that. That where there is a, that the church overall, because they have dealt with those issues, not as a result of just trying to diversify, but because they have de- dealt with those issues, we stop seeing these uh, this reliable segregation of the church. The church is still, uh, at least in, in the US context, the most segregated institution of American life. And so being able to see that end because every church is a place where everybody can thrive uh, starts to be a, a um, instead of making it a lead measure, we make it a lag measure that really demonstrates the fact that that equity has come into the church. Um, in in neighborhoods and in communities, we see a real uh effect of the, the local churches at a neighborhood level and the the Church coming together at the the state and national level to stand up for for issues of righteousness um, and to do it not with argumented argue arguments but with with acts of mercy. Um, this is one of the things I've been studying out that the the center of the chiasm that forms the beatitudes is um, thirsting, uh, hungering, and thirsting for righteousness and showing acts of mercy. So these two go together. When we hunger and thirst for righteousness, we show it by acts of mercy. So um, I think of the, the early church who took care of not just their own widows, but the Roman widows too. What can the church do in terms of criminal justice, in terms of a hospital system and medical debt, in terms of school debt, in terms of these things that become acts of mercy that show nations that the churches are in a better way of this is how you live equitably. Mm-hmm. Um, and I do believe that churches can do that. There's enough adherence and enough money in the church around the world that if that were our focus, we could absolutely uh, make a difference in that area. And the final thing is that people would be coming to the church and saying, you guys have fixed your, your issues of race. How did you do that? Uh, the church is supposed to be the example of the world to the world uh, in this area in creating one new humanity and one new family. And so I will believe that we have really done it when every other institution is gathering around and saying, you guys got it figured out. Uh, can you help us uh, figure it out as well? And so that's the future I'd like to see. Quickly, please. Yeah. Everybody, let's get Quick, on this.
0: Quickly, <laughs> before we get sucked <laughs> up in the tube, right? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Um, man, uh, Ania, it's uh, it's always a transforming experience to to talk to you, and um, I so appreciate your work as a pastor and sociologist and prophet for the church and uh, the things that you bring to our conversations. and um, uh, And it's just great to have you as part of Red Skies. I mean, I I really can't imagine this book without your voice uh, as part of it. So. So thank you for being part of that. Um, Where can people or what's the easiest way for people to get in touch with you um, if they would like to carry on this conversation, find out some of the resources, you know, for their own journey? um, Where can they find you easiest?
2: Yeah, sure. So. I'm I'm teaching pastor and co-founder of, of 21st Century Church. So you can look us up online. If you're interested in our resources, particularly on race, uh, you can look at the at loveandunityproject.com. And you can often find me on Twitter at Ookwabi. So look forward to hearing from you.
0: All right. Fantastic. Well, it's been a great discussion. Way too short, as I said, we could spend a, a lot of time on this topic. But I appreciate you uh, giving us your insights, and um, and hopefully, all of us guys like me that are white, you know, pastors in the church uh, can can take this stuff to heart and and not just think about it and talk about it, but actually make some. Some real change where we can display the kingdom in our context, and, and that's the hope with us—that um, we can be good news um, to our context. So, so thank you, Ania and uh, Rich. It was great to see you as always, and um, we'll we'll see you guys on the next podcast. All right, take care. Okay. Thank you for joining this episode of Red Skies the podcast podcast has been brought to you by Movement Leaders Collective and 100 Movements Publishing in partnership with our friends at Missio Alliance. You can join the conversation at movementleaderscollective.com and connect with us at Red Skies at redskiesfuture.com. And as well, pick up your copy of Red Skies, 10 Essential Conversations for Our Future as the Church, on amazon barnes and noble and other places that fine books are sold be sure to like this podcast and share it with others and we look forward to continued conversations on our future as the church